We are in week two of a brand new series, so if you are new to church today in the room or online, I want to extend a very warm welcome to you, And because we're in week two of a series that is called Heal This Land, which is looking at the biblical perspective on the environment. Not your usual thing that you hear about talked about in church. And so we are doing this, this series for a couple of weeks, which is really important. Now... Um, if you've been around for a few weeks within the life of the church, you know that we did a survey called You and the Environment to get a little bit of an understanding of how our church sees the environment. And from those results, 95% of the church said that um, Christians are to have a concern about ecological issues. Now, because of that overwhelming response, for the majority of us think that, then my question is, when did you start being concerned about the environment? Was that something, was there a particular moment for you where that occurred? I mean, it could have been for you like when you're driving through Tasmania and you came upon Queenstown and you end up seeing this desolation here as you came along and saw the landscape. That's the result of decades of copper mining. You may have been confronted with that landscape and gone, oh my goodness. It could have been a moment like this or it could have been another moment for you or it may not have been a moment at all. It may have been something that you've always had with you, just a concern for the environment. For me, it's been a particular moment. Um, I grew up in a particular part of Wollongong, and um, where I grew up, the, uh, one street over from my house was the bush. And so um, every during my years as uh, an older primary school student into my early teenage years, I spent every weekend in the bush. And I remember one particular time then a, a, a big group of us, we happened to go up into a particular uh, part of the escarpment underneath Broker's Nose Peak, if you happen to know Wollongong, there's Broker's Nose there. And we decided to build a huge, great big cubby house about, you know, for about a dozen people or so. And so all of us, we started out and cutting down lots of trees cutting down trees left, right and centre, we started building the structure. Now, the structure was so big that we didn't get it done all in one weekend. And so we came back the next weekend to find it was destroyed, absolutely destroyed, and destroyed in a way that we couldn't go back and start rebuilding the whole cubby house itself. We think it was the old water board, or the, as, as it was known back then, uh, or, the, or the forestry people or, or local government, something like that, they, they did the destruction. And so we, considering how... Absolutely, clearly, they destroyed our handiwork the previous weekend. We thought, okay, we're going to take this as a sign that we should stop. Now, as much as I was an active participant in cutting down all these trees, something didn't sit right within me. I just didn't feel good about that. And I wasn't sure why that was the case initially. You know, so when we came back the next weekend and found that we couldn't keep on rebuilding the, the cubby house and keep on cutting down all these trees, I actually felt quite glad about that. I felt, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to do that again. I know it was peer pressure or something like that. It made us keep on undoing that or wanting to, to build that. But I, I was really thankful that I, I didn't need to keep on building that. And I tried to reflect on that. Why is that the case? And the only conclusion that I came to is because of something that I saw on Sesame Street, <laughs> I think it around about 1975, a number of years earlier before me being, doing the cubby house building in Wollongong. And that was, I think, is my earliest memory about the need to care for the environment. And so I want to show you the clip from Sesame Street. That's all right, we can go to Sesame Street, can't we? All right, so this is, this is the, the clip from Sesame Street that had such a profound impact on me. Let's, let's watch it now. Thanks, Kate.
woods one day walked Max with his axe and a toodaloo. He cut all the trees down fast as he could just to show what he could do. I'm the best at chopping, Max would say, and he cut trees as fast as he could. Till just one tree was left to chop, and Max said, man, I'm good. But this tree was bigger than all the rest, and though Max took careful aim, that tree wouldn't chop, that tree wouldn't fall. Max was way off his game. Then the tree started trembling and thunder clapped and a cloud of smoke rose high. And there was Max in the hand of a genie looking in that genie's eye. But now the genie rumbled in Max's ear, I'm the boss of all I see. And I'm turning you into a tree for a year so you'll understand about trees. So Max took root in the blink of an eye and he stood there quietly. He grew leaves and bark and the birds all came to nest in a brand new tree. Other animals came and Max grew fruit and soon began to see what a beautiful, pretty, growing thing it is to be a tree. And at that moment, the thunder clapped and the genie broke the spell. And Max resolved he'd never chop again. And you know something? It's just as well. Now, does anyone remember that? No, no one can remember that. This, this had a huge impact upon me. You know, I spent hours in front of the TV growing up and uh, I just remember, some reason I remember that clip um, all, all those years ago. But I have to say that story scared me no end. I imagine as a five-year-old being thought about being turned into a tree for the way that you treat trees and treat the forest. This had a profound impact upon me. But not only that, not only did it scare me at the time, Look at the message of what it said. It talks about the issue about the importance of trees and not just the importance of trees, but the importance of trees to the environment and how other creatures are impacted by forests and trees and things like that. But not only that, perhaps even more important was the fact that the message there said that you can't simply do whatever you want to do to the environment, particularly when it comes to our greed and our pride. As Lumberjack Max found out, it was his pride. Yeah, I can, I'm the mightiest axeman in, the, in all the world and I can cut down any tree. It is pride that caused Max to want to cut down all the trees. Now, why I showed you that clip is because not only is it significant to me, but it is also a great introduction to what we're talking about today, about the issue of ecological stewardship. Now, the term stewardship is not something that we hear a lot of in the outside world because, you know, for the most part, a lot of people don't think about the issue of stewardship when it comes to their lives. You'll only a lot of times hear that term stewardship in a church context. But we may not know what stewardship actually means. We might have heard the term, but not sure what exactly what it means. Well, if you went to the secular dictionary, dictionary.com, this is how it defines the term stewardship. Stewardship is the position and duties of a steward. It is a person who acts as the surrogate for another or others, especially by managing property, financial affairs or an estate. Stewardship is the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. 
So stewardship then refers to the duties in looking after something, something important and doing so on behalf of someone else. So when it comes to ecological stewardship, what do you think that means? Well, I think it clearly says that ecological stewardship is about looking after the environment, caring for it, preserving it on behalf of its creator, on behalf of God himself. Now, where does this term ecological stewardship come from? Was it just simply made by some green theologian, you know, from, from, from the decades past? Is, it, is that how it all started? You know, Troy, that's an interesting concept. You know, you've just made that up. Well, actually, the stewardship and environmental stewardship is actually intricately linked to the creation story. And there are a few words in the creation account which give us clear understanding what the issue of stewardship is. Although we, for many of us, many people throughout all of history, we've interpreted those words to mean something very different to the way that we interact with the environment. And so what I want to do is just spend a few, little bit of time looking at these particular words to give us an understanding of what environment, uh, ecological stewardship is actually about. So the first of the passages we're going to look at is from Genesis chapter 1, and then we're going to have a look at Genesis chapter 2 as well. So from verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, this is part of the account. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God, made, so God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the first two words that are important for us to understand this issue is stewardship. Understand the Humans' relationship and interactions with the environment are the words subdue and rule. They're the first words. And those two words alone can tell us everything we need to know about ecological stewardship. But those two words have often been interpreted, as I said before, by many people to act very differently when it comes to the environment. But there are two other words as well, which I mentioned. And from Genesis chapter 2, we read this part of the creation account. It says, The Lord God then took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in the second creation account, we see two other words. Those words being work and and care. Now, we're going to come to the significance of those four words in a few moments' time. But before we do, there's something else that's really important in that creation story, particularly from Genesis chapter 1, that we must recognize. So going back to verse 28, it says this, that God blessed the people. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the birds and over every living creature, it says. And so what we understand is that God blessed not just Adam and Eve, but he then also blessed all of their descendants with the same mandate, and that mandate being to subdue and rule over the earth. Now, from this creation account, 
God then has positioned people and he has given them responsibilities to fulfill. Now, we know from straight out definition that stewardship is being positioned and having responsibilities. And so from this Genesis 1 account, we already see that God has positioned people and has given them responsibilities to be his steward and steward of the environment. But the issue thing is, you see the words there, that God blessed them. See, what we have to understand is that in, in environmental or ecological stewardship is a blessing. It is not a curse. It is a blessing that we have received from God. And God has given us, given people a divine empowerment to succeed. That's what the definition of blessing is, a divine empowerment to succeed. And so God says, I'm going to give you a divine empowerment to succeed. And the way you're going to succeed is by multiplying, by filling the earth, but also by subduing and ruling over the earth, over creation. Now, what do you feel like that you rule over in your life? Do you feel like you rule in your marriage? Got to be really careful about how you answer that one. Do you feel like you rule over your kids? Do you feel like you rule at work or rule on the sporting field? Perhaps you feel like you rule on social media where your opinion is above everybody else's. You know, my opinion that I'm going to express on social media, that's all that matters and that's the best opinion. Where do you feel like you rule? I would imagine that very few of us, we don't feel like we rule at all. I mean, after all, <laughs> we don't have dominion over the TV remote control, the driver's seat in the car, or even the temperature of the air conditioning most of the time. So a lot of us don't think like we, we, we rule over anything. Some of us, though, may feel like we rule over everything. But the interesting thing is that God has blessed us to at least rule over all of his creation from the Genesis 1 account. You know, God has bestowed upon you the ability to rule over the fish and the birds and all the living, all the creatures on the land, even the land itself. And with this blessing from God, what this means in telling him, the, telling us that we can rule, it effectively means that we ourselves become king and queen over creation. That we ourselves, because he's given us the ability to rule that. But usually, though, we don't... The only time we really consciously think that we rule over anything is when we've got a can of mortine in our hands or a bottle of Roundup. How satisfying is it when you, when you see the mozzie fall from the sky or, 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 or a weed shrivel in your midst after you've given it a bit of a spray with Roundup? How satisfying is that? I am ruler of my domain. You know, we, we, get, we get really, feel really important about that, don't we? We feel it's so powerful. We're ruling over our domain. The reality is, though, that this blessing that we receive from God to rule extends far, far beyond simply dealing with the pests around our home and has much different implications to that as well. You see, because you are empowered, you are blessed to rule, you are king or you are queen over all of creation, God has blessed you, blessed each of us to fill, fulfill that role as his stewards. So with that, let's come back then, with that understanding of that, what God has blessed us with, let's come back to having a look at a little bit more of those four words that we looked at from the 
two creation accounts. Starting at verse one, uh, Genesis chapter 1, um, the two words there that we looked at was the words um, subdue, which comes from the Hebrew word kavash, which means to, to subject but not by force. It means to subject but not enslave it. It's talking about the issue about not using things selfishly for our own gain. It's mean making productive, but not simply for our own selfishness. That's what the word kavash means, or the, or the English word subdue. Very different to what we may have understood the word subdue to mean, hey. And then you've got the other word, the word rule, which comes from the Hebrew word rada, which means to have dominion over. In other words, what royalty has, what monarchs have as kings or queens, that we have the ability to rule as a monarch, if you like, and rule over creation. That is an ability that we have. You know, after seeing all the protocols that, um, that needed to be followed after the Queen's death, how many of us would like to be in King Charles' shoes right now? I mean, how would it be having to grieve for your someone so loved so publicly? It'd be horrible, wouldn't it? Like, I mean, how do you feel? How have you felt when someone close to you has passed? Would you want to do all that in the public ways that King Charles has done? Isn't it true that most of us want to actually take time out, take time away to deal with our grief? We wouldn't want to do it in a public way like Charles did, but he does that. Not merely out of tradition, but out of duty. This is what the king does. It is part of the responsibilities that the king has, as hard as they may be, to fulfill part of what it means to be blessed to occupy the position of king. He does it because that's what a king does. You know, as um, Warren spoke about earlier, words like duty and care and service have all been used to describe Elizabeth exercising her dominion as queen. You see... King and queen are to rule over the people that they are in their influence, their sphere of influence, their, their, their ruling area. And they rule by serving the people. The reflections back about the queen is about how she has served the Commonwealth, how she served the UK people in particular. It's interesting that when you have a look at the biblical understanding of what kingship is about, when earthly kings are to be instilled, they are, it's all about fulfilling the plans and purposes of God and also making the lives better of the people that they are serving. And, so, and as you know, so from the reading from the scriptures or from what you've observed throughout life, a monarch, a king or a queen, they will be labelled either good or bad based on what? Based on how well they have served the people that they rule over. It's all based on their stewardship of their particular role, which will determine if they're good or bad kings or not. So taking the example of Queen Elizabeth then, what then does she teach us? about what it means to rule over what we have dominion over as a result of the way that she has ruled over what she has had dominion over. What do we learn from Queen Elizabeth? 
when it comes to our rule over the environment. To help us understand this a little bit more, let's go to the words of Genesis chapter 2. Those words were work, or which come from the Hebrew word abad, which is, means to serve and to till, to make productive. And then you have the other word care, was used in Genesis 2, which comes from the Hebrew word shema, which means to keep, to watch over, to preserve, to protect. Now, when you put the Genesis 1 and Genesis words 2 together, you see it creates an interesting picture about what it means to be God's stewards when it comes to ecological issues. We see that, in, that God's blessing for us is in relation to the way that we watch over, the way that we care, the way that we preserve and protect the environment. These are the words used to describe how humans are to interact with their creation, with God's creation, as a result of the responsibility that God has blessed us with. Notice there that in those words, there's nothing about exploitation or destruction or selfishly taking for ourselves. In fact, our ruling over and our subduing of creation as defined in the original creation story is actually for creation's benefit. Creation is to sustain our life, absolutely. But we are to exercise our rule that we have been given by God to ultimately for creation's benefit, not simply ours. You know, a lot's been made of the kings and King Charles and, and Queen Elizabeth's faith in the last 10 days. We're, I'm sure that all of us have heard in these reports about how important the faith was to both of those people, Elizabeth and Charles. But you've got to wonder if the reason why Charles in particular has been involved in environmental issues for such a long time, for decades, is because he actually understands what it means to rule what he's been blessed with by God to rule over. See, Charles now has come into the ability to rule over people, to serve people. He has done that and is now coming into that in a new way. But if you have a look at what Charles has done throughout all of his life, he's also understood what it means to rule over the environment as well. He's been actively involved in the environment because he understands, I suspect, of what it means to be given by God a blessing to rule. It's not just ruling over people for their benefit. It's also ruling over the environment for the environment's benefit. Returning again to the definition of stewardship for a moment. Remember that stewardship is about a person who acts as the surrogate on behalf of somebody else and it's also responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. So what that means is that from the very beginning, when the Bible describes people's relationship with the environment, words like rada and kavash and abad and shema. They all clearly define people's responsibility when it comes to ecological stewardship. And one of the thing, important things we must always remember is saying whenever you are given a stewardship in any aspect of life, as soon as you are given a stewardship, there is accountability that comes with that stewardship. Whenever in any workplace you are given a stewardship, you are to steward for your particular job, your particular role, but there's always accountability that comes with that. And so too, when it comes to ecological issues, we've been given a stewardship for that, and so we'll be held accountable for that. 
Now, some of us may have never thought about the fact that God's got to hold me accountable for the way that I, for my influence on the environment. Absolutely he is, because that's the role of stewardship. With stewardship comes accountability. Now, there are two really big attitudes and actions which actually prevent our effective stewardship of the environment. Ever heard of the seven deadly sins before? Yeah, not quite. You heard of them before? If you're not quite sure, they are, they were they were developed by the Desert Fathers in the third century AD, and they are, amongst other things, they are a list of sins which they think that all of our sins that we do fall into one particular category or another. And the seven deadly sins, if you're not quite sure, are this: they are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. It's really interesting to think about that. The sin of pride that was enacted by Adam and Eve with that piece of fruit back in the garden way back when, <laughs> that saw sin come into the world, it is actually, it actually was a sin against the environment. Because they did something with the environment that God told them not to do. Internally, it was a sin of pride, but the way that it got expressed was actually a sin against the environment. I'm not quite sure if you've ever thought about that before. In any case, a failure to be a good steward is actually giving in to two of these particular deadly sins. You see, we will fail in our duties as in environmental, as ecological stewards if we fall into the temptation of greed and sloth. Now, the author of of uh, one of the articles in this incredible book that's called, you know, Words for a Dying World. And, it, and this book is, brings together a whole lot of articles from the global church about the environment. An excellent book. Um, and uh, one of the author in, in this uh, talks about the fact that our stewardship actually gets impacted by the, the sins of greed and sloth. Now, our greed counters stewardship because... Our greed is about what we want. Greed is about, about what we selfishly get out of it and greed is about wanting more of what we get out of it. I, I think that most of us would understand that and agree to that. Remember, though, that stewardship is about living in a particular way that's not what we get out of it but what the person that we are stewarding for gets out of it. So greed is actually counterproductive to us being good stewards. But let me give you an example about how Greed may get expressed when it comes to environmental issues. We love technology these days, don't we? We absolutely love technology. We want to buy more technology. We want to have more technology. Technology is developing all the time. And so in our greed for more technology, we are replacing old technology at even greater rates, creating what? Creating more waste management issues for the technology that we're continuing to throw away. Not only that, but we're also destroying more and more, more, and more of the environment because we're now having to mine new rare earth elements and other material like lithium and cobalt to go into the new technology. So in our greed for more technology, we're actually having environmental impacts for that, not only on mining, but also in waste management. Our greed is impacting our ecological stewardship. But it's not just greed, it's also sloth, according to this author. Sloth, as many of us know, it's, you know, it's about inaction, but it also means you know, apathy, being indifferent, not caring at all. That's, the, that's, that's what sloth is as well. 
Now, Jesus' parables of the bags of gold that you find in Matthew or the parable of the minnows in, in Luke are parables about stewardship of the master's possessions. The master, before he went away, gave the servants some treasured possessions for them to look after. Now, the master in those parables are none other than Jesus himself. But interestingly, when you read those stories, the servant that gets chastised for what they've done is the servant who does nothing with what they've been entrusted with. They get chastised for a lack of stewardship over what is being entrusted to them. This inaction is actually the sin of sloth. So when it comes to our environment, we fail in our stewardship if we do nothing or even if we do the bare minimum. But the interesting thing is that the author of the article in this book also extends this to include that sloth also refers to doing what is expedient, over what is doing right. Now, we may have never thought about that before. Doing what is expedient over what is doing right. Let me give an example of what that could look like. You know what it's like. You are tired, you are busy, and the last thing you feel like doing is cooking dinner. So you go down to the supermarket and you buy a pre-prepared meal instead of what you usually would do. And why do you buy a pre-prepared meal? It's because it's easy and because it's quick. But the interesting thing You just don't go and buy a pre-prepared meal. You buy all the packaging that goes along with the meal. Or how about about another example? That you've got to go somewhere relatively close and you go, I'm just going to drive. Why? Because it's close, because it's easy, it's convenient. I could walk, but I'm going to rather drive. And we choose to do that. We choose to drive to that place just down the road because it's what expedient and convenient for us to do so. Now, you might think, oh, that's, what does that matter, Troy? Well, think about this. Multiply those decisions for the pre-prepared meal. Multiply those decisions about just using your car to just go down the road. Multiply that millions of times every single day. Multiply that billions of times every single day. And what do you see? You see our... As a, as a humanity, we use the, the, in, um, the world's resources unnecessarily, creating an impact upon the environment for things that we don't need to do. But we choose to do it because of our expedience, our choice to, be, to do things quicker and easier. Every time we choose expediency, we'll usually fail some way in our ecological stewardship. I'm expecting to see people out walking everywhere these days, moving ahead perhaps as a result of this. So our greed and our sloth results in our overworking of the environment, in our desire for more and quicker. We take more out of the environment and we put back into the environment all the byproducts of stuff that we don't really need at all. You see, our greed and sloth then corrupts our stewardship. Remember, stewardship by definition is to protect and use appropriately, not to exploit or to abuse or to use selfishly. Exploitation and abuse due to our greed and sloth makes us poor rulers. And the reality is, as I said before, that we are going to be held to account for the way that each of us have ruled over the environment in the way that we have interacted with the environment and creation itself. So I wonder where you may have seen yourself that you have been greedy and you have been slothful when it comes to the environment. 
The environment then, creation then, bears the scars of our failure to steward, bears the scars of our sins of sloth and greed. So how then does it impact our interpretation, our understanding of one of the most famous and beloved passages in all scripture? What does it do to our understanding when we come to John 3.16? Let's have a look at it again. John 3.16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his his Son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, usually we understand this passage as saying that because God loved people so much that Jesus came into the world for people's sake. But the interesting thing is that the Greek word for world here in this passage is the word cosmos, which means the universe, all of creation. So how does that change then our understanding of this beloved passage if we understand that the world is referred to all of creation? It says that because of God's love for all of the world, Jesus came into the world. For us who have the opportunity to respond to the message of Jesus, then we will inherit eternal life. But Jesus has come into the world because of God's love for all of the world. To what? To save the world. Not condemn it, but to save the world. Jesus, by his own admission, is not just people's saviour. He is the world's creation's saviour. And for us, what that means then is saying for any of us who have actually come into and accepted what Jesus has done on the cross for us, it changes us because we, we, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we accept God's plans for humanity, God's plans for myself and yourself as part of that humanity. And part of God's plans for humanity is being ecological stewards. As part of God. Saving us through Jesus is also seeing his people, his redeemed people, impact the environment because we then adopt our understanding of what ecological stewardship is, is what, because that's what God gave us as part of his plans for us right back in the beginning. You, Jesus just didn't come to save you of your sins. Jesus came to save you from not being an ecological steward. Now, as Michael and Kirsty come and lead us now in one final song, what today means is this, is that each of us are confronted perhaps with a reality that we've never considered before, that we are going to be held account, accountable for the way that we interact with the environment. But not only that, but we are also perhaps got something to confess, something to repent of when it comes to the way that we've interacted with the environment particularly when it comes to our sin of greed and our sin of sloth. See, the things that we have to repent of are not simply sins against God himself or against one another. Often we also have to repent of sins against his environment. They are equally as valid as anything else because of what God has mandated us to do as his stewards back in the beginning. I wonder if any of us recognise today like I did in, that, in building that cubby house all those years ago, that, you know what, I've got something to admit here. I've got something to repent of here. I've got something to confess as, because I haven't understood the breadth of the plans of God and my interaction with that. Maybe some of us need to confess that today and admit that. Maybe others of us, we need to simply admit, you know, come to Jesus and, and ask for him to forgive all of our sins. 
the ones we've done against people, the ones we've done against God himself, the ones we've done against creation. If that's you today, then, you know, myself and, and, and John and some of the members of Oversight, we're going to be available for you and love to talk with you about what that means for you. This is a big topic and I know that I've gone a couple of minutes over time and I thank you for your grace for that. But this is a really important topic because this is a worldview that perhaps few of us have ever heard about before, have ever considered. But this is so important because this is what God blessed us with in the beginning. In the beginning. So, I may, you know, we're going to continue next week. We're talking about ecological justice. But hopefully today it's given you something to think about in terms of the way that you go about stewarding, ruling over creation. What is your influence? What does your rule look like when it comes to creation? What is God asking of you when it comes to interacting with his environment that he created? You join me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that today you continue to challenge us and you continue to change us and shape us by the power of your spirit moving amongst our hearts right now if our hearts will be open to you. Lord God, I just want to thank you so much, my brothers and sisters, Lord God, who, who do have a current care about our, our environment, but just continue to encourage us about how we can best do that, particularly with having a, a foundational understanding about what you're asking of us to do. Lord, we repent of where, we, where we've messed up when it comes to the environment, where our greed and slothfulness have, has caused incredible impact upon our rule over the environment. But Lord, change us by having an appreciation of what you want so that we can live differently tomorrow when it comes to your environment that you've created. Lord, I just want to pray now for all of us. Continue to help us grow in this area and have a bigger picture of who you are and what you have done in your creation and in sending Jesus as not only our saviour, but the saviour of all creation. We thank you now in Jesus' mighty name.